I'm Kevin Fagan, and this is part two of Dark Days, an oral history of the 10 days in November 1978 that went from the Jonestown Massacre to the assassinations of Harvey Milk and Mayor George Moscone. Let's get right back to the interviews. Yolanda Williams' family joined People's Temple when she was a child, and for years she found comfort in the fact that many of the people in the church were African-American, like her family, and seemed to be a nurturing group. But Jim Jones imposed a racist leadership on his flock, and that's something Williams says has never really been addressed in all the documentaries and stories done since then. She goes into great detail here. Williams escaped from Jonestown before the massacre, and she went on to join the San Francisco Police Department, where today she's a lieutenant, specializing in working with communities in need. I joined People's Temple, I think it was like 1968. I know I was just in entering into my um, last year of middle school at Everett Junior High School here in San Francisco. Okay. My family, my, my uh, dad and my mom were members of People's Temple. I had a brother who came on occasion. Uh, his interest was not necessarily in the church. He was looking more at the ladies. <laughs> and um, my other brother chose not to. And then I had a sister who occasionally would come to church services until one day she just decided she had enough, so she tore into Jim Jones. Really? Yes. And how? What, what, what year would that have been? That would have probably been around 1973 or 74. Initially, what attracted my family was the metaphysical healing services. My dad was a minister and a plumber for the city and county of San Francisco, and he has sustained a heart condition. And his then doctor, William F. Dowling, I'll never forget his name, stated that my dad would never be able to return to work, and nor would he be able to ever preach again. We went to, well, I should say my dad first went to a service because one of his clergy friends told him about Jim Jones and that there was this prophet. He could tell you things about your life, and he was healing people from all these different ailments. And he said, Rev, you got to go, because they used to call my dad Rev. He said, Preacher, come on. You got to come up here to Redwood Valley and check out this man. His name is Jim Jones, up in Ukiah, yeah. So you were here in San Francisco. In San Francisco. We were driving every Sunday once we decided we liked and we wanted to be a part. We were there every every Sunday, Wednesday nights, and then other, uh, yes, two and a half hours away. Yeah. And we, so we would, we would be like, uh, sleepless <laughs> and going to going to school going to work i mean whatever it was you were doing you 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 did what you had to do but uh, my dad's name was reverend harry williams senior he was affiliated with uh, saint mark missionary baptist church so <laughs> when um we joined my dad um at the church for the first time my mother and i we drove up in the parking lot, and I thought, wow, this is strange. There's a little big old ranch-style home. I'm looking at grape vineyards. There's chickens. There's dogs walking around in the parking lot. And then I'm looking around, and I'm seeing 
black people, white people, Asian people. I'm like, wow. And I'm seeing young people, old people. It was just incredible. And the parking lot was full of cars. So when we drove up, we walk up to the front door and there's all of these people greeting us and hugging us, asking us what our names were, where we were from, what brought us to their church. And I mean, the welcoming committee was so overwhelming. They just won your heart over instantly. And then his wife, Marcelin, sweet as the driven snow and singing My Black Baby. That was a song she had sung to Jimmy when he was just a little baby. And every time she would sing that song, Black Baby, I'd always cry. And I still, if I hear that song, I cry just because it was so touching, the words and everything. So that's the kind of thing that, you know, that was the lure initially. What about what came out of his mouth when he preached? When he preached then, it was about your duty to humanity, to social justice. He talked about Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, Malcolm X. He, he made you feel like you were empowered as an African-American. You had such a rich culture. And then he talked about the Native Americans, and he talked about that history and how rich it was and Angela Davis, uh, the Black Panthers, everything you wanted to hear about as a young person. He would talk a little bit about your duties according to the Bible, and he would talk to you about some things in the Bible, what a Christian should be doing, and that we all should be Christians. That's why it was called People's Temple, because it was just a Christian place for Christians to be. You know, so he gave you that sense of 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 uh, a foundation that was solid. And then he went into the healing service. Now, this first time we went there, there was no healing for my mother or my dad. But I saw other people around us called out and they were healed of like cancer and all walking and maybe visual problems and all this stuff. So I was like, wow. I'd say within going up there a month and a half to two months after going, he wound up one Sunday calling my dad out by name. And what happened? He he told my dad where he lived, what type of work he did. He says, you have a doctor. Hmm, doctor, doctor Dowling? is it? And I'm like, oh God, he knows daddy's doctor's name. And he says, he said that you had a heart condition. Something's wrong with your arteries or your veins or there's something blocked there. He says, look at me. And he put his hands out to my dad. He said, hold your hands out, Reverend. And he did. He says, I'm telling you right now, you are going to be healed. Do you believe it? My dad said, yes. He says, raise your arms up. My dad raised his arms up. He goes, I want you to run around this building. Run around here as fast as you can. My dad was hardly walking that well. My dad ran around and around that building. I couldn't believe it. What do you think happened? Well, you know, that I attribute to the fact of mind 
over manner. We didn't know it at the time, but it truly was the power of suggestion and the power of the mind. And we did not know until later that Jim Jones had been reading a lot of Edgar Cayce books and other books of that nature, realizing that really if you suggest something to someone enough mentally, you can get them to believe that something has changed. After he did that, of course, I was so full of gratitude for Jim Jones. I said I would never forsake him. I mean, he had me so hook, line, and sinker brainwashed to the point that, you know, it was just that I felt compelled that I needed to do everything I could in order to try and repay him for what he had done. And I think that my story is not much different than perhaps another former member of People's Temple if they had had the experience of one of their family members being healed, that they would certainly feel like they owed a debt of gratitude to this man. I've heard this before. Yes. And black and, people predominantly always feel that way. And, and, and about 80, 90% of the church was black, wasn't it? Yes, yes, yes. And that's the unfortunate thing is that with 80 to 90% of the church being black, the unfortunate thing is for the entire 40 years, the stories that they focused on are the stories that have been told by the Caucasians, but they have never asked the African-Americans or the black people, because I always call myself black. They've never asked black people what the experience was truly like for us in hindsight. Tell you know, what's, what's, what stands out for you most? For me, as most person. as a black gotcha. person, there was a hierarchy and it was very evident that there was a hierarchy. And the hierarchy was all white. I've never heard anything like that from anyone I've interviewed on Jonestown for many years. Very interesting. Uh, I'm just stepping in here for a second to tell you that we're going to another section now where Yolanda has just landed in Guyana. She's heading over to Jonestown, and she sees these crates getting offloaded uh, from the planes. Later on, she told me that these crates had guns, which uh, Jim Jones had denied. You can hear some of that information on the full, longer interview with Yolanda at sfchronicle.com slash darkdays. But right now, we're going to hear Yolanda talking about rolling down the dirt road and heading into Jonestown, and she wasn't liking what she was seeing. When we got to the van, all of this stuff got put in there, these crates and everything, and we're driving down this dirt road, and I'm like, First of all, I'm a city girl. What are we doing on this filthy, dirty road? And what am I doing in this raggedy, and this is what I really thought, this raggedy-ass blue Dodge van? Are you kidding me? It was like this Econoline van, and you could feel every bump and everything. And I'm looking around, and I'm seeing all these people that just look like poor. And I'm seeing these huts that look worse than what I've seen in the South. And I'm like, oh my God, what have we gotten ourselves into? So I'm looking at my husband and he's looking at me and we're both, our eyes are just like, we've gotten like big eyes looking at each other like, oh Jesus, now what? So when we get to the house, which is at Lamaha Gardens, which is the, 
where they were doing a lot of the missionary work in the capital, the first thing they asked us is, do you have any money and give us your passports? And I said, well, we were told not to give our passports to anyone. Oh, no, we just want to keep them locked up for you for safekeeping so that you don't lose them. So we gave them our passports. And then when we got into the room where we were supposed to be staying, they put my husband, myself, and my daughter in that room. And so during the night we were talking, and I was like, I don't like this place. And he said, I don't either. How did you finally unhook and split? Well, first of all, I had been stocking up money. So the money I was stocking up, I never let them know I had, of course, and I'd always keep my clothes on because you had to be very careful with yourself because they would go through it if they given a chance. Because I was even sending letters back to the United States to family members telling them what was going on. So I got a letter and I wrote it to my mother and I told her, you need to get here, bring money, keep your passport, make sure you have enough money to get me and Naoki tickets to get out of here. This isn't what he said it was. This is this is a slave plantation, and we got to get out of here. So it was like my mom became our angel that time. That was Yolanda Williams, who survived Jonestown by escaping before the massacre, and she went on to become a police lieutenant here in San Francisco. Next, we're going to hear from Willie Brown, who says some things that I have never heard him say before. He was uh, very reflective on how in the 1970s he got to know Jim Jones, Harvey Milk, George Moscone. Uh, It was a political whirl at the time, and everyone was kind of hoodwinked by Jim Jones. And all these years later, after he became mayor in the 90s and has been a political force in the city and the state for many, many years, he does some pretty heavy reflecting, and you'll hear it right here in this clip. Let me set it up for you. Back then, courtrooms were in City Hall, and Willie Brown was a lawyer, as he is now. He was doing a trial. During recess, George Moscone asked him down for a cup of coffee. On the way out, after having a coffee with Moscone, uh, I um, passed Dan White uh, and uh, said hello, and Dan said hello to me. I had no idea that I was on his hit list. What did he look like when he passed you? Uh, just like Dan White, he was always kind of pasty and mm-hmm. he always uh, not terribly well-groomed. Uh, looked like he was, uh, you know, uh, kind of out to lunch, which is really? what he always looked like, even under the best of circumstances. Yeah, he, so he did not look any different. George uh, had uh, told me uh, that he was giving Dan one more meeting. And Dan had resigned, and uh, he wanted take the resignation back, but George had uh, agreed to appoint uh, uh, Horenzi. Donald Horenzi, I think the name was, Mm -hmm. something like that. And Horenzi was there in 201, in in, in room 200, with his family. He was. Waited in the lobby to be sworn in. It wasn't like this was like it had been planned because it was over a few days that this resignation had taken place. Yeah. And George was going to swear him in that morning. And he told me that he had agreed to give Dan White one more meeting to tell Dan that he could not undo the swearing in. Mm. And he invited me to come back for the swearing in. 
Oh, boy. And so I left to go walk back upstairs one floor to Chuck Goff's office, mm-hmm. and that's where I was. He did not like the direction the city was going in, because Moscone took us in a more liberal direction. Isn't that right? Moscone uh, had uh, done what no one else had ever done. When Moscone got elected, he set about to uh, diversify of the people who served in boards and commissions. Mm-hmm. And he started, frankly, with and the planning department because uh, in the early version of people who were concerned about the growth of San Francisco uh, always expressed themselves at city planning. So yeah. George put on city planning uh, people like Ina Dearman, John Dearman's wife, uh-huh. uh, Sue Behrman, uh, who, who uh, right. you know, uh, lived a long time in order to become a supervisor. And was as with any big change in any society in a city, uh, there were people who didn't like this. What didn't Dan White like about that? What did he hate? The, why did he hate this so much? Well, I, Dan White was the uh, remnants of what San Francisco must have been at one time. Mm-hmm. Um, because Dan White was not very bright. Let's start with that. He was not... As I said, he was not really part of any real movement in this city. There were a few people hanging out, like Dan White, people like Baba Gelada from out there in Sunset. Conservative guy. Yeah, Quentin Kopp, who uh, went on to become a member of the legislature and a judge, now is an ethics commissioner, still uh, pretty much of the same opinion. And the town was... Divided. How does the city look differently today uh, with Dianne Feinstein having become mayor than it would have if George Moscone had filled his term and maybe gotten another term? I think that George Moscone um, would have caused the city to be uh, more reflective of where Agnos took the city for appointment purposes. Mm-hmm. The people who would have been the department heads on the people who would have been the commissioners, on the people who would have had uh, um, the long-range opportunity to help develop San Francisco as nonprofits, all of that would have happened on Moscone's watch, as it happened in part on, on the watch of uh, of then uh, ultimately Mayor Agnos. And and Dan White just couldn't stand that, could he? No. He could not stand the fact that uh, the city was moving away from his boyhood. That is really too bad. But why did he want to kill you? I think simply because I was part of the Moscone-Burton world. I was really, uh, you know, he he talked about on that same list, a member of the Board of Supervisors, Carol... Ruth uh, Silver. Ruth Silver was on that. And uh, uh, I don't, I, I can't figure out how... Carol Ruth Silver and Willie Brown would have been on anybody's same list. <laughs> but I think it all had to do with yeah. the city was moving in the direction of inclusion. And Carol Ruth Silver was as much a part of that as I was. Moscone was yeah. the leader of that, along with the Burton group. What stands out largest from you for you from that particular time, that nine-day period? What punches you in the head when you think back to that week and a half? Well, when I had to tell Gina Moscone that George uh, had been killed, it still bothers me. I 
got that responsibility. That was a terrible response. was in a car, headed over to Marin County, I think, and and they made the recommendation that um, not she not be told, turn the radio off, let her come back to City Hall before she finds out. And uh, they brought her back to City Hall. And I hope I never, ever have the responsibility to do something like that again. How did you approach it? Because that's a terrible responsibility. Well, I just uh, straight up, as I am always, you know, as a, my kids say, uh, we think you prefer bad news. <laughs> <laughs> because I never sugarcoated it with my kids. I never sugarcoated it in my public image. If there was something bad that was about to happen, um, I laid it out, and then we dealt with it. And I had to tell her, and it was difficult, but I did. Now, that kind of brings up Jim Jones. How was he able to slide by so many people? Because I know there's been a lot of soul-searching and wrestling with this over the decades. It's a long time ago now. But how in the world did he dig in so well? Well, I, I uh, met, obviously, met Jim Jones, uh, had support. Uh, for sure. Jim he Jones. supported everyone uh, who was of significant he leadership. He was appointed to the Housing Authority. George Moscone put him Wasn't on he the chair at one authority. point? Yeah. He may have been the chair. That I don't remember, but he could very easily have been because he was a bright and able person. He did not demonstrate anything... That would be odd and strange, except a white guy wearing dark glasses who seemed to care more about black people than any other white man mm-hmm. that I had ever uh, come across, period. Or, and he seemed far more practical uh, about uh, the world of politics. Uh, and he, by the way, there was a resentment by black preachers. Black preachers were very strong in San Francisco yes. in that time yeah. frame. There were multiple black churches. We had a black population that was maybe 12, 15% of the city. Much bigger they than today. Much bigger and, and, and much more able. Uh, and they lived in the city. They literally lived in the city. Yeah. They had been participants in integrating the fire department. They'd been participating in integrating the police department. They participated in getting jobs for black people on the municipal railway. They had been part of the effort to for the demonstrations or at uh, at um, the hotel industry in the city, mm-hmm. uh, the automobile industry in the city. They were very much a part of uh, the student protest movement uh, in the city. All of that had been very much a part of what the city was about. And so there was resentment of Jones because... Tim Jones, by black preachers, uh, in part, because he was not connected to any of the organized religion. All the black preachers were connected to Baptist, Methodist, wholeness. uh, Not even the Seventh-day Adventists were black okay, so to speak, uh, because the black folk in the city, in most cases, had immigrated from the South. And we in the South were all members of the church, we in the South were all uh, NACP members. Every church had their own uh, solicitor for membership in their, in their 
NAACP. Oh, sure. And so Jim Jones was huge. odd for mm-hmm. all of that. He was different from all of that. Can you think of anyone since then who's approached, who's, who's set off your alarms in your head? Not really, because I kind of now operate on the theory that everybody should be suspected. <laughs> and, and that comes in part. Because yeah. uh, I really don't want to have to explain, as uh, I suspect uh, my eulogy will include, how and why did you let Jim Jones um, use your uh, credibility and your brand to help sell uh, his hoax? You had a lot of company in that. Uh, and I imagine, how, how, how long did it take for the pain of knowing you'd been snookered? How long did it take for the pain of that to subside? I don't think the pain ever goes away. I don't think the pain ever goes away. Because invariably, about every two or four years, uh, there's another semi-documentary, there's mm. another book, there's another individual who survived the Ghana experience, or there is a um, story interviewing a Jackie Spear, or there is something about that occasion and that in a series of incidents and how gullible we all were and how easy it was uh, to uh, uh, give us the impression of being something you're not and how will, how willing we were uh, in some cases, I suspect, uh, because we simply wanted to win the election. We wanted to uh, win the point on an issue, and we were willing to not necessarily hold the supporters to the highest possible uh, standards um, that you would think. Uh, I think Jones removed that from me forever. How did, how did you... Because you actively lived the trauma of all that. How did, how did you come to, to, to a peace in yourself uh, so that you're not just anguished all the time? Well, I think there, in order to just survive and remain at least sane, you really do have to uh, forgive yourself mm-hmm. for your ignorance, forgive yourself for your absence of due diligence and observations and observing. Forgive yourself for not being as militant on the inspection side as you need to be. And then secure that forgiveness in some cases by doing aggressive efforts to make sure others do not become victims. And that more than anything else is what really keeps you somewhat uh, level. But you never really get over um, the mistakes and the uh, uh, inadequate role that you could have played. That was Willie Brown, mayor of San Francisco in the 1990s and a true authority on all the tumultuous events of the 1970s. After a short break, we'll hear from Frank Falzone, who was the homicide inspector who took Dan White's confession and then later on took a second chilling confession about even more murders he had planned. We'll also hear from Ann Cronenberg, who was Harvey Milk's campaign manager and a close friend. 
This is Dark Days from the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm Kevin Fagan of the San Francisco Chronicle, and this is Dark Days. For longer interviews and text stories and a giant collection of vintage photos and newspaper pages, go to sfchronicle.com slash darkdays. Next up, we're going to hear from Frank Falzone. Frank was a homicide inspector for many years in San Francisco, and he grew up in working-class San Francisco when it was kind of Catholic. He and Dan White both played ball, became cops together, and watched the city changing. In the 60s and the 70s, it was moving away from its traditional conservative, uh, somewhat blue-collar with a few strata of economics in it. Uh, it was becoming a more liberal, open-minded, free-swinging kind of city, and Dan White didn't really like that. In fact, Dan White hated it, and Dan White wanted to change that. So when it came time for Dan White to run for supervisor, who did he go to talk to uh, first? He came to Frank Falzone. I was the first guy he came down to see. And he came into the homicide detail, and he walked over to our desk. And he had been working for the fire department at the time. I was very happy to see him. He says, well, I'm here to tell you and Jack, Jack Cleary being my partner at the time. He says, uh, I'm going to run for supervisor. I never thought it was a smart move for Dan to leave the police department for the fire department. But that was his choice. In the meantime, there was a very contentious election going on between John Barber Gelada and George Moscone for mayor. And I'll never forget. It's something that is just etched into my brain. The police department was mostly conservative. But a lot of people knew George, like George, probably would have voted for George. We had, uh, we used to call it the show-up room. Back in the uh, early 70s, every morning the detectives would meet in the show-up room, and the suspects from the night before would be brought out in the lineup, and you'd get to see the latest arrest the day before. So we all met up in the show-up room because candidate George Moscone was coming to address the inspectors. And in walks George, and uh, you could hear a pin drop. I, I don't believe anybody was clapping or, or excited to see George, but we were asked to be there because there were chiefs that felt if Moscone got in, they might become higher up. So George comes in, he says hello to the few guys that he knew, and uh, like I say, you could hear a pin drop. And then George started to talk. And over the years, I've seen smooth talkers. If I had to say, I, I would put George up there with uh, Bill Clinton. He could sell icicles to an Eskimo. He, George got up there, he started talking, and he says, let me tell you something, gentlemen. If I'm your mayor, and I repeat, if I'm your mayor and you help elect me, see that man right there. And he points at uh, Captain Ray Canepa. That man right there will be your next chief of police. Well, oh my God. When George left that room, he got a standing ovation from these 350 hardcore detectives. They were on George's side. 
That's the capability that George had. Okay, we're going to skip ahead now to 1978. Dan White had been elected to the Board of Supervisors, but then he resigned. Dan never called me. I did not know what was going on up there, except I did read in the paper that Dan White had resigned. And without communicating with Dan, I felt, smart move, buddy. Go back and be a fireman. Go back and be a police officer. Apparently, I think they were making like $9,800 as a city right. supervisor. Right. And I think he was making around twenty-eight or 30000 as a cop or fireman. Go back, Dan, and get your old job. Good for you, good for your family. What I didn't know, and I come to find out later, his friends in the police department who were on the POA, his friends in the fire department who were on the fire union, and the friends at the uh, Chamber of Commerce, they were losing their voice at City Hall. This was important to them. Dan, you can't do this to us. Didn't uh, uh, didn't the, 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 the chamber and the, and the union say, okay, we'll help fill in the salary if you just go? You're just absolutely go correct. Tell me about uh, What I recall is that, yes, we will compensate you the difference. We want you back on the board of supervisors. So Dan felt, okay, I could do this. I'll go back. But the first thing he had to do was pull back his resignation which he personally didn't think was a big deal. He walks in and sees George Moscone. And again, George Moscone being this amiable guy, he looks at Dan, he says, hey, Dan, you grew up in the city like I grew up in the city. You played sports like I played sports. Hey, you can change your mind. You want your job back as far as I'm concerned. You got your job back. I just got to clear it with the Board of Supervisors. No problem. So Dan leaves, he goes downstairs to tell Diane. And when he goes in there, his office was in between Harvey's and Diane's. He could hear Harvey on the phone with George. We don't want this conservative voice back on the board. We want somebody appointed that's more like us. And having somebody more like us, that sixth vote will go our way. Dan hears this, but Dan's a square guy. He, I, I knew him and I could tell you he was very square. He leaves thinking, hey, I got the mayor's word. That's as good as gold. Forgetting politics is not anything as good as gold. So Dan goes home and he starts uh, isolating himself from Marianne the family spending downstairs in his, his den. And uh, he's deliberating on everything that's happened, deliberating on what Harvey's doing to him behind the scenes. He was being destroyed. He was being destroyed from within the people at City Hall. This is the mood he was putting himself in. So on the faithful day, I think it was November 27th, 1978, early in the morning, his aide, a young girl by the name of Denise Apgar, she calls Dan somewhere around 9.30, 10 o'clock. And she says, Dan, 
I have it straight from the mayor's office. Uh, a bulletin came out that at 11 o'clock, the mayor's going to appoint someone to your seat. You are not getting your job back. So Dan White says to her, I'll be right down. He straps on his police revolver, which in his confession he said it was just habit that he always carried the gun for protection because he was a city supervisor in the confession. Mm. That's what he says. The reason why he climbs through a back window at City Hall, he says, is because he knew he was carrying a gun and he didn't want to embarrass the men that were he knew were the security people uh, on the um, metal detector. So Dan walks into the mayor's office. Moscone is nervous, and he lights up a cigarette. And he says, Dan, come back in the ante room. I, I have to talk to you. There was a little ante room off of the mayor's office, and I remember, might not have it 100% correct, but it had a sofa, a chair, uh, I remember like a coffee table. He says to Dan, have a seat, Dan. Uh, what do you drink? I'll fix you a drink. And so he, he took out some liquor and had a couple of glasses. And Dan White says in his confession that I'm not here to drink. I'm here to find out, am I getting my job back? He said, I'm looking at this man. And he says, uh, I have a blurring in my head. And... Uh, I remember him saying, Dan, I'm not reappointing you. You're, and I said, I felt like he destroyed, he destroyed me, he destroyed me, he destroyed my family, everything I stood for. And he gets very hysterical in his confession, starts to cry. And I felt when I testified, I described it as a pressure cooker where the lid exploded and everything came bubbling out. He's now spilling his guts. He says that when Moscone said I wasn't getting my job back, I don't know what came over me, but I knew he was killing me and I was going to kill him. Hmm. So I took out the gun and I shot him. This is in the confession. He walks in to the supervisor's side, which is, as you know, across and down the other side of the hall. Right. I believe one's on the third floor, one's on the second mm -hmm. floor. Yeah. And you have to go down a flight of stairs. He said, I had no intention to kill Harvey. That's what he says in his tape. He says, as I'm walking in, Diane Feinstein says, hey, Dan, can I see you for a minute? And he says, one second, Diane, I'll be right with you. And he walks in and he sees Harvey. So I open the door. This is part of the confession. And there was Harvey and he looks up at me. And he says, I could see the look in his face that he knew why I was there. And he's smirking at me like, we got you. And he says, I felt that same sensation come over me. The blurring in my head, the face feeling flush took out the gun and I shot him. So now we had confession to two murders. From my years in homicide, that meant I was sending a friend 
to death row. And Dan White was smart enough to know that. I come to find out, and I'm jumping around on you, six years after he's released, or well, I shouldn't say six years after his conviction, when he's released from prison, he calls me. And he wants to get together his family, I believe it was the Burns family, Mary Ann's father, had passes to the uh, uh, LA Olympics, 84 Olympics, and he wanted to know if I would go with him. He wanted to talk to me. So I wanted to go down and talk to Dan and find out if I missed anything. So I went down to LA on my own money and, and I met with him for three days. And we just watched the boxing matches and the track meet. And we're sitting out in the courtyard. And I think we had a very cheap lunch, if I remember correctly, hot dog, potato chips, and a a Coca-Cola. And we're sitting there. And I want to start now talking about my investigation. I want to know how pure I was, how, how thorough I was. And I didn't miss anything, right? And Dan looks at me and he says, uh, I, uh, I really lost it that day, didn't I, Frank? And I looked at him. I said, Jesus, Dan, yes, you, you lost it unbelievably. I, I said, I still can't believe you shot and killed two people. He lowered his head and he says it was going to be a lot worse. And I said, a lot worse? He says, you remember I had 21 bullets in my pocket? He had a five-shot revolver. He said, I wanted four people that day. And now I'm thinking, oh, my God, four people. The four people he wanted, George Moscone, Willie Brown. And I said, Willie Brown? He said, Willie Brown was the puppeteer. He was pulling the string, George's strings. Willie Brown was controlling everything. Wow. I'm not saying a word now. I'm stunned. Harvey Milk. Harvey Milk betrayed me. We were friends at one time, but Harvey betrayed me. And Carol Ruth Silver. I knew nothing about Carol Ruth Silver except that she was one of the liberal or progressive liberal uh, supervisors. That's all I knew about her. And I said, why, why Carol Ruth? Why her? And he said... She was the biggest snake of all of them. He never elaborated on that. I never asked him anything more. All I remember thinking was, wow, four people instead of two. And then he says, the 21st bullet was for myself. That was Frank Falzone, who was a homicide inspector in San Francisco in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And he took Dan White's confession. Next, we're going to listen to Ann Cronenberg, who was an LGBT activist in the 70s. I had just recently graduated from college, was working a dead-end job, and was looking for something better to do. And that's when she got a call from Harvey Milk. I got a call out of the blue in 77 from Harvey saying, yeah, saying, your friend Ken Lester sent me a donation of $100, and in the letter he said, you should really talk to Ann Cronenberg. She's young, she's enthusiastic, you know, give her a call. I think she could help on the campaign. No kidding. Yeah. 
he's he said, you know, to I'd like you to run my campaign. <laughs> you ran the campaign. Have you ever run anything? No, I had never run anything. Why in the world did he want you to run his campaign? He said, I want you to do my campaign, and I said, I've never run a campaign before, so, like, you know, I don't think this is me. But and he said, Well, I know that. He said, I know how to do a campaign, but I can't be the candidate and run the campaign. And so Ken said, you were young and smart, and, you know, I'll teach you. And that's what he did. Anyway, so Harvey was, like, desperate, desperate enough to pull in a young 20-something-year-old who had no experience. He also, though, he, in his other campaigns, had surrounded himself by men, and I think that he was wising up and saying, okay, well, this is not just like a gay male issue or, men, you know, I need to have women involved. That's why he won, because he was about empowering everybody, all the have-nots, he used to say. Mm -hmm. You know, so like if all the have-nots get together, then we're the haves. <laughs> right. And so, you know, like let's empower people who feel like they have no power. So, you know, it's not just about lesbians and gay men. It's about, you know, people of color and people with disabilities and seniors. Seniors were a big thing for, for Harvey. Big thing. And so pulling everyone together, um, you know, caused a, or not caused, created a, a, um, a campaign that was very colorful and also very representative of how San Francisco looked. Okay, I'm dropping in here real quickly just to uh, kind of explain something. We're jumping around a bit on this Ann Cronenberg interview, but right here, Ann is going to be talking about how she thought when Harvey Milk got elected and when George Moscone got elected, things were looking really good for going in the direction she wanted to head. She wanted a liberal bent in the way politics were being run in San Francisco, and they had a lot of hope. I thought this was the turning point. We had we had George in office, and George and Harvey had had their skerfuffles, you know, because when Harvey went to run for the supervisor, he had to to resign from the Board of Permit Appeals. But it wasn't like there was no love lost there. I mean, Harvey still, Harvey understood politics. He understood why George had to do what he was doing. Um, but he also could make a point with the public that then would raise his stature and get him more votes if he was plated off in whatever way. I think in terms of, of running for mayor, George was the first who courted the gay community. Which brings us to Jim Jones. Yes. Uh, tell me what you thought of Jim Jones and his bunch at the time. So at the time, I thought his followers were all really nice people. I mean, they were volunteers in our campaign. I used to go back and forth to Gary to drop stuff off at the People's Temple on my motorcycle, the back of my, with, you know, more pamphlets and flyers that, you know, that the temple could pass out then. I'm cutting in here again just to say that uh, we're jumping around a bit, but at this point, I'm talking to Anne about Jim Jones. She hadn't met him, but she knew People's Temple, and she knew a lot of their people uh, in that church because they were helping on the campaign. Uh, I asked her, how in the world did Jones manage to fool so many people in the city into thinking that this was an okay church when it was actually a growing fountain of evil. Because we knew people, you know, and if you know people, 
and they seem okay, and they're telling you everything's fine. It's like, you know, it's the, the eyewitness account. And so we knew folks, and we were not hearing, you know, beatings or anything weird going on. And so, you know, oh, it's probably the big bad media just trying to create some kind of sensational article because they don't understand this. This was the 70s. It was very weird times. Okay, one more clip here from Anne where she's talking about Dan White, the man who killed her boss. I thought Dan White was weird from the very beginning, and Harvey said, you know, just give him a chance. Just give, just give him a chance. He's young. You know, we can mold him. Mm -hmm. they, 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 they did appear to get along. Oh, Harvey wanted to get along with everyone. You know, Harvey got along with Quentin Cop. He like he tried to get along with everyone. Um, but how did Dan respond to all that? I think Dan originally, you know, did respond positively. And there's a scene in the movie Milk that it's actually true that Harvey went to the the christening of Dan White's son and was the only only board member who showed up for that. Um, and so. I think that that meant something to Dan, but looking, <laughs> looking at Dan, I mean, picture this young guy. He was so naive. He thought like, if you went up and said to someone, this is what I need, oh, it would just happen. That's not how politics work. It's all about, you know, establishing relationships and give and take. And astounding because it, 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 a cop, you would think a cop would get how to get things done because you got to deal with street people and community and that didn't seem to have sunk in for him well i mean i don't i <laughs> i would say bad things about dan white because he you know assassinated my friend and boss but i you know to get into his head would be a little over my what what you know what i know but my feeling with Dan is he was he was somebody who never who never really knew what he wanted to do. I mean, who becomes a a cop and or a firefighter and leaves it to become a cop? I mean, that's weird right there. In the it's just to me it you know it shows like oh I've tried this for a profession now I'll try this and you know fast forward to when he gave up the board because he said he needed to raise money for his family he was going to open the potato stand he he only stuck with the board for 11 months I mean I don't think he had the genes in him to stick with something and to follow it through on the on the day that the mayor and, and Harvey got killed uh were you surprised that it was Dan White, or did it shocked? Oh no, I. So, I've told this story so many times before, but um, I had come out to my parents, well, because my dad specifically asked me, not because Harvey said come out, come out. It was like only when my dad reached out to me and said, like, yeah, what's going on? I came out to my parents um, about six months before Harvey died. And um, so I did not want to go home that Thanksgiving. My parents were very loving people and certainly didn't cut me off, but it was just uncomfortable still. So I said, hey, I'll come up after Thanksgiving. I don't want to be there for the whole family thing, but I will come up. So on Monday, November 27th, I was on a plane to Seattle 
when Harvey and George were assassinated. I got off the plane, and instead of taking a cab to my folks' house, my mom was there, my dad was there, my brother was there, my sister was there. I was like, this is really weird. And my dad pulled me aside and said, you know, let's go over. He took me into a non-crowded part of SeaTac and said, um, you know, we have some sad news. Harvey's dead. <laughs> like, you know, how in the is that possible? I just saw him yesterday. What, you know, what are you talking about? And he said he was murdered. What moment in that whole time, that awful, you know, 10 days, what moment stands out most for you? Hmm. I guess there's a couple. I think the moment that that had the biggest impact and made me realize how important Harvey was, was the candlelight march the night of his death. Because I was at the front of the march and got down to right when we were turning onto Polk Street to go to City Hall and I looked back up Market Street and as far as I could see, there was candlelight all the way up to Castro and there wasn't a sound. The only sound that you heard that night was crying. And so I think if there's one moment that just I can still recall as if it was yesterday, that's the moment. And thinking, this wasn't just me. This wasn't, this is, this is the city out here. We had hundreds of thousands of people come that night to march in silence, hand in hand, elbow in elbow. It was... It was very profound. That was Ann Cronenberg, who was Harvey Milk's campaign manager. Well, that pretty much wraps up uh, a short version of the interviews I did with eight key people involved in the uh, uh, 1970s dark days, 10 days from Jonestown massacre to City Hall assassinations. I got to tell you, I've been doing reporting a long time. I covered the 20th anniversary. I even did some of the 10th anniversary, and I was around them when these killings happened. And these folks told me things I'd never heard. Marshall Kilduff was right at the front of it. His story broke open the whole thing uh, in New West when he exposed People's Temple. Jackie Spear was just about killed. Uh, It's amazing that she lived, and she's gone on to do a uh, a lot of things with her life and become a real leader. Uh, Congressman Ryan would probably be very proud of her. She's in his chair today. Uh, Chris O'Sullivan, an uh, amazing historian, has great insights into this. I thought he summed up things pretty well. And then uh, talking to two very different survivors of Jonestown, uh, Tom Bogue and Yolanda Williams, uh, one conservative, one liberal, uh, they had the same kind of resilience. I thought they brought out some thoughts that I had not heard before. Uh, And Willie Brown went deeper into his reflections on uh, how bad he felt from the time, like everyone at the time. Uh, 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 And he expanded on that in ways I had not heard before, which also uh, came with uh, Frank Falzone. Uh, The whole bit about him being at the Olympics and having Dan White tell him that 
He had two more people in mind on his hit list, uh, Willie and Carol Blue Silver. The detail on that, I thought, 40 years later, was uh, kind of amazing and telling and chilling. It's uh, That was a terrible time, and Anne, Anne Cronenberg was right in the middle of it uh, to have her boss killed and have the momentum of the LGBT movement uh, disrupted in that horrible way and then carry on. Uh, she's she's a very important voice in my mind, uh, and this whole history is something that needs to be remembered, and I'm glad we were able to put together a package. You can hear the longer interviews with all these folks at sfchronicle.com slash darkdays. So thanks to producer King Kaufman and project editor Terry Robertson for putting all this together. And thank you for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Kevin Cron, and of course my reporting is in the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm Kevin Fagan, and this has been Dark Days on the Centerpiece. The Centerpiece is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Audrey Cooper is the editor-in-chief. The executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. Subscribe to The Centerpiece wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to The Chronicle's digital or print edition, or both, at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.